Well, good morning to you. We are in, as some of you know, as lots of you know, we're in the book of Galatians. As all of you know, because Bubba just read that text, but as some of you know before you came in this morning, we're going to be here for a while. It's an 11-week series. We're walking through the whole book. Get to touch every, every verse, every text, which is good. Sometimes we'll take a bigger book and take six or eight weeks and we can't, we can't get it all, but this is kind of exciting because we get to touch it all, but certainly not unfold it all. It's so rich. Someone, I said this, the first, the first sermon has compared Galatians to, the book of Galatians to dynamite. It's just a powerful, when you begin to un, unpack it, it explodes in power and the Holy Spirit works and Christ is really exalted. It's sort of like a, a succinct Romans. Romans is, you know, Paul wrote, essentially half of the New Testament, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but more letters in the New Testament than any other writer by far. And this is really where he gives, puts forth the clearest exposition of what the gospel, the distilled, undiluted, pure gospel is. And Galatians is kind of like, it's been described as sort of a smaller Romans, which is his magnum opus in his Summa Theologica, as it were. So it's dynamite. It, I spent some time in Scotland. You could even maybe compare it to a single malt. It's a single malt whiskey of, of, uh, of the gospel. It's, it's distilled, it's pure. Paul comes out swinging, as I said in a sermon or two ago, contending for the gospel, and he does that here in this text. At this point, the first verse that we get in chapter two right away is 14 years later, then after 14 years. So within one Sunday, we've jumped forward 14 years. So it's about 50 AD, between 47 and 50 AD, about 15 years after Jesus has been crucified and, and risen. And the gospel's been proclaimed for some time throughout the Mediterranean world. But Paul, after having spent time alone and then after having preached and having made some disciples, brings a disciple uh, to the pillars of the church in Jerusalem and finds that, some, as he says in the middle of this text, some, some have come into the church and said, yes, we believe on Jesus, we believe the gospel is the way to salvation, it's foretold in the Old Testament, but to be uh, the people of God, you have to be circumcised. And that's part of the law of the Old Testament. The Jews had always been circumcised. The, the, from eight days old, if you were a Jewish male, you were circumcised. And that was a mark of being one of God's children. They said, yes, the gospel is wonderful. Jesus has secured our salvation. But also, you have to be circumcised because that is necessary to be a child of God. It's always been that way. It needs to continue to be that way. And Paul says, red alert, we cannot add a single requirement other than faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. He has done everything necessary. So he comes out contending again for the gospel and he says, I'm doing it so that it might be preserved for you. So the stakes are so high in this text for us because what Paul contended for, we're the beneficiaries of. And he basically says to us tacitly, implicitly, continue to contend for the pure gospel. So we'll look at a couple things this morning. One, how religion enslaves he says, look, it presents itself as a sort of way to get a grip on God. And in that sense, to free, religion presents itself as freedom, but it actually produces slavery. So if you could think of it as a Trojan horse, it looks nice, you bring it into the city, it looks like a gift, but if you embrace it, it ends up burning the city down. It ends up burning your life down. It ends up incarcerating you and destroying you and killing you. So we're first just gonna look for a few minutes at how religion enslaves. It promises freedom, but it enslaves. So one thing that we know for sure from the New Testament is that, well, let, let me again 
sort of crystallize what these false teachers, he calls them false teachers, seem to be saying. Essentially, by adding circumcision to the gospel, they're saying that faith in Jesus is not enough to be saved. You must also keep the Old Testament law, albeit a portion, okay? So it's not enough to be saved. You must also keep a law. In James, which is a book in the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother, James, says that he who keeps the whole law but fails in one point breaks the entire law because it's all of a piece. Now, we can reverse that, as it were, and say that if you decide to keep some of the law, even one law, as a way to present yourself to God, then you've just decided that you need to keep the whole law because, again, the law is of a piece. And who are you to say, okay, this, this one is the only one now that God requires. The rest of them I don't have to keep. Or if you pick a few of them, a smattering, 10, 13, 20, 100, who are you to say? And Paul actually says this very thing in Galatians, which we'll get to later in, in 5 verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So you've just, in, in saying we need to keep this and then trust Jesus, you know, you're, you're saying that Jesus' sacrifice, his life and his death for us, it wasn't enough. The law, keeping the law through our own strength is also necessary, even if it's just one law. In this case, it's circumcision. So you can see already how problematic this is gonna be. And I want, I want you to see as we, as we work through this text how, in, how greatly problematic. But it's also dangerous. So let me talk about that for a bit. Religion and slaves. So keeping the law, again, even one law, works to convince us that we are keeping the whole law that God has given. It just, that's the way that it works. It's the way that it was working here. Let me, let me break that down. It encourages a superficial understanding of God's law. Again, circumcision was the mark of the Jew. It was the visible thing that distinguished the people of God, the Jew from, from the unbeliever. It always uh, pointed, though, to an inner reality that was to take place through trusting in God and his promises. So it, wasn't, it was an external sign that pointed to something inward that was very important, that was accessed by faith in God. But focus on keeping the law, an add-on to the gospel, it really helps us to start to think of things in terms of keepable measurables, okay? So the gospel becomes about externals and appearances, and what happens that's so deadly is that the heart is neglected. Meanwhile, which is what the law is really about. So there are three effects in this point, three effects of, of this sort of externalization, um, this keepable measurables of the law. It deceives us, number one. It encourages hypocrisy and either cultivates pride or despair, number two. And number three, it also gives us a false view of God and what he's like, okay? So first, it deceives us. Tim Keller says this. He's a pastor in New York. He says, God does not judge by external appearance. Look at, look at our text, Galatians 2.6. It's very clear. Externalities are to do with our doing. Internalities have to do with our being. And Christianity, get this, is about who I am in Christ, not what I do for him. Keller again, he says, if your salvation depends upon obeying the rules, then you want your rules to be very specific, doable, and clear. Okay, specific, but here's the word, doable. We have to make sure that the law that we choose to obey to sort of represent the whole law, we can actually do. So we latch on to things that are external and superficial and in a sense, keepable, right? You don't want, he says, love your neighbor as yourself because that's an impossibly high standard with endless implications. It's the as part, 
that's so deadly there. Love your neighbor. Okay, fine. As you love yourself. Take care of your neighbor. Think about your neighbor. Treasure your neighbor just as you do yourself. Spend as much time on. Which of us have ever done that for a minute, much less a day or your entire lives? And yet this is what God requires. This is what God requires. What we do want, rather, is don't go to the movies or don't drink alcohol or don't eat this type of food. You notice how doing, focusing on the law, it tends to externalize our way to God, but it also tends to negativize. A lot of things become don't do this, don't do that. And we become a people of don'ts and no's, more identified with what we're not about, and I'll get to this more in a bit, than, than what we are about, than who we're for, than who has saved us, okay? So it externalizes and it negativizes. But God's law, here's the thing, here's the gut punch. It's not primarily about externals, it's about the heart. Let me, let me sort of build that case. Galatians 2.6, again, sort of this is the heart of this 10-verse passage. Paul says he doesn't care about what people seem to be. I'm not a respecter of persons. They seem to be, to be this, they appear to be that. Didn't matter to me um, because, but he really cared about what they really were and what they stood for. Why is he like this? Because he's becoming like his God. Finding Jesus Christ and being united to him through faith is making Paul, it's made him a new creature and he's becoming more and more like Jesus through faith. And God is a God who shows no partiality, Paul says in this verse. The word, if you look at this word in the Greek, in the original text, it, it's kind of surprising. The word partiality here is literally the word face. What is it saying? God is not a God who looks at your face and your appearance and is thereby impressed or depressed, depending on how you look. He is not a God who looks at externals nor cares about them. He cares about the heart, the character, what's really going on. In fact, there's a, there's a famous passage in the Old Testament where God sends his servant Samuel after his first king that's been anointed over Israel, Saul, fails miserably. He's outwardly very impressive. He's a head above, he's a head taller than everyone else. Kings in that day had to be warriors. He was physically impressive. He was seemingly humble at first, which turned out to be he just didn't feel great about himself and he didn't want to be put in the spotlight. But God says to Samuel, I found myself a king and I want you to go to anoint him and it's not Saul, it's someone else. And actually in the verse he says, in the Hebrew it says, I see for myself a king, I see. And what he says there when Samuel goes to anoint David, who is just a shepherd at the time, and actually Samuel says, Bring, I'm, coming to, I'm coming to have, Samuel's the prophet, he says, I'm coming to have dinner with you. And when, when the prophet of Israel says that, you, you put on your best clothes and you line up, maybe he's coming to anoint, maybe he's coming to bless. Um, so Jesse had seven sons, eight, I believe. I didn't check this. But he lined up all seven of his sons when Samuel came. And Samuel, sure enough, he's listening to God. Which one is it that I'm supposed to anoint? And he goes down the list. And God each time says, not that one, not that one. Nope, nope, nope. It's really embarrassing, sort of poignant moment. And he gets to the end, he's like, and he literally says, Do you, surely you didn't leave a son out. Is this it? Is this all you have? <laughs> you know? And, and Jesse says something surprising. He says, actually, there's the runt. He literally uses the word. They're small one, but it can, it can be derogatory, katon in the Hebrew. And, um, and, and, and Samuel says, get that boy. And they bring him. He's been left out collecting garbage, essentially, with the sheep in the field. They bring him in. He's probably all smells like sheep and sweaty and ruddy, and he's smaller, and he's the youngest. And, and God says, that's the one. Because God, he says, man, here's the verse, looks on the outward appearance. 
Don't we all? Don't we all? Aren't we all so enamored with surface? More in this generation, more in our culture than ever in the history of the world are we enamored with the glossy magazine cover surface, with the Facebook front, with the Instagram. But God says what? But God looks at the heart. God sees right through our sham. And that's wonderful that he's like that, but for us, it's not so good news. So 10th command, the Decalogue is the 10 commandments and all the rest of the commands, the 630 commands in the Old Testament hang on the 10 commandments. They're sort of a summary, okay, of those. And the last one sort of casts its net over all of them. And the last command is this, you shall not covet. What is so interesting about that? What's so interesting about that in part is that coveting is something that nobody can see at first. It's in my heart. It's unseen. And God is saying, all of my law I'm giving because I'm getting at the heart and I want you to keep the law, not just externally, but from the heart. I care about your motivations. They need to be pure because I am pure, because I care about you. And if your heart's messed up, you're gonna die. You're gonna suffer. People are gonna suffer. In the Shema, uh, which is, the, the Jews call it the Shema because the first word in the Hebrew of this verse is Shema Israel. Shema means here. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Someone came up to Jesus to test him. They said, hey, Jesus, what's the most important law? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And also there's one like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, not only is this the most important, but it sums up all the other law. And if you keep this, you keep the other laws. What is the most important thing to God? To love our maker from our heart, with our head, with our body, with all of our strength in life, with everything, and also to love our neighbor, again, Leviticus 19, 18, as ourselves. So God says the whole law is summed up in this, keep the law from the heart, obey me from the heart, love me with everything you are. Which of us have kept that, again, for, for 10 minutes? Which of, I have, have I ever loved God with my full being, uncompromisingly? No, no. No, and yet that's what he requires. Francis Schaeffer says, so you might say, okay, great, but I don't believe that the law of God holds anything for me. I don't don't believe in that authority. Fine, and that's, a lot of the West is there today. So if that's you, let me just bring it down a notch, okay? Let me just bring it down a notch and say, Francis Schaeffer, who was a a sort of mid-century theologian and thinker and writer, he says, imagine that we all have invisible recorders around our necks, all of our lives. So again, you look just like you are right now, but you have an invisible but real recorder. And it's recording everything you're saying and everything you're requiring of other people. And it's also recording all of your thoughts and everything you're requiring both of yourself and of other people. At the end of our lives, we play that recorder. Could any of us stand just based on what are the standard that we've set for ourselves and for others? Just on our own standard, forget God's standard. No. And if you're saying you could, you're self-deceived, and let's talk later, okay? Um, We can't even measure up to our own standard. How, therefore, can we, do we have any hope of measuring up to God's? So that's the first thing is that it deceives us. But secondly, it encourages, this sort of externalization, it encourages hypocrisy, and it cultivates either pride or despair. Being focused on externals, the church becomes a breeding ground, a petri dish for hypocrisy. Because if, if the law, if what God's concerned about is the, the surface, the face, the outward, then I'm just gonna make sure everything's clean kind of on the surface in my life. And I'm gonna make sure that I look okay, even if I'm in shambles on the inside, which oftentimes is the way we are. I had a Scottish friend that said, 
Don't judge your insides against other people's outsides. It's a great, it's a great word. Um, but we often do that. We're often in shambles on the inside, but we present a front because we're insecure and because most other people just see that. It's kind of like, again, like I said last week, if you invite a couple to dinner, some of you, a few of you actually do have spotless houses. We're not one of those families. And so we have three little kids. That's our excuse right now. I don't know what it'll be when they grow up, but um, when people come over, we just shove, you know, just shove, hurry, alarm bells go off, kids do that. And we shove stuff into a closet. Um, but that's what we do with our lives oftentimes. And what it, so this sort of externalization creates an environment that is saying, if you have any problems, stuff it. Just look good. And man, that is not freedom. That is slavery, friends. That is absolute slavery. Um, so I hide my sin from myself and from others. If I'm, if I'm not honest and I go along with that and I measure myself based on externals, then I can be really proud about how everything's looking okay. If I'm keeping the stuff, if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, and then if I'm breaking, the, even if I'm not honest, but I'm breaking those things and I've failed on the outside, then I'm despairing. So it either leads, externalization of the law either leads to pride or despair, depending on how honest you are, okay? So secondly, it encourages hypocrisy and cultivates either despair or pride. Thirdly, though, it gives us a false understanding of what God is like, um, Let's, I call this the magical view. I think of this as the magical view. Let me explain. So the circumcision mentality also creates yeah, what I call the magic problem. It moves us toward thinking of God as a sort of genie, a genie in a bottle, okay, who can be manipulated through my behavior as a sort of cosmic slot machine. If I put in the right amount of coins, you know, read good behavior, do this, not that, lots of don't, don'ts, don't do this, don't do that, don't, you know, dance, drink, or neck, or date boys who do, that kind of thing, right? Then out comes my cosmic prize from God. If we've taken this approach to Christianity, we're probably largely unaware of it. Remember what Paul says here? These teachers that introduced this teaching, they slipped in in secret. So this could have slipped into the church, into your life in a variety of ways. It could slip in here almost without us realizing it, which is why Paul sounds the alarm, which is why it's so important for me to preach what Paul says this morning. It creeps in quietly, and it begins to enslave us. It begins to enslave us. Um, this sort of mentality looks like freedom because it puts me in the driver's seat, in a sense. If I obey what I think is required of me, then I'm blessed. I should be, right? So God begins to owe me. He becomes my debtor. See how that reverses the gospel? Um, God can be manipulated. If I obey the rules, then I ought, God owes me a good life. The promises in the Proverbs and in other places um, but if I'm obeying God, at least if I think I am, and, I, and cancer strikes, or I lose a child, or I get a bad grade on a test even, then I, I get mad with God, because I thought we had a deal, see? Um, and it creates the elder brother syndrome. God, you're holding out on me. I've done everything that you've required, and what do you give me? Nothing. It makes us angry. It makes us proud. It makes God, in our perception, our debtor. Um, if I obey and receive blessing and I'm not stricken but I'm blessed, I take credit for it. It's no longer grace. It's no longer something undeserved. It's no longer something Christ has done. It's something that I deserve. And so even the grace of God is not seen as such. So we've seen how religion enslaves. Again, it's the Trojan horse that promises freedom, but when we bring it into the city, the citadel of our souls, it burns us down. It brings death and destruction. And that's why Paul sounds the alarm. So religion enslaves, but lastly, this last point, Christ sets us free. 
and only Christ and his beautiful gospel set us free. Now, the worst thing that I, that about religion, I think, that I didn't mention so far is that, um, that the fact that it enslaves is that um, this false view of adding regulations to the gospel, even if it's just one, you, okay, trust in Christ, faith in Jesus, but also do this. Because again, one, the whole law is told together. If you, if you choose one, you gotta keep the whole law. Conversely, if you keep the whole law but break one, you've broken the entire thing. Remember that, okay? So it, um, it suggests that the Old Testament laws were adequate. If I keep the laws, then I'm clean. I'm okay before God. That they were adequate to make us clean, to make us acceptable before the one, holy, almighty God. We begin to think that way. Yeah, keeping the law can make me acceptable. But the Old Testament sacrifices never took away sin. They never had the power to transform or to cleanse the conscience of the one or to really take away the sin of the one who was offering the sacrifice. But what the law could not do, friend, Jesus did. So I can't say it better than the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. He says this. He says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. How, how much power does a shadow have? Nothing. It has no power. It's tied to the real thing, and the real thing is what has vigor and power in life. And what this author is saying is the Old Testament was powerless. It was a shadow. And what does a shadow do? It's tied to something real. It's tied to, in this case, someone who's going to come. Jesus casts a reverse shadow. It was all written for him, for the one that God would send, his own son. Okay, the real one that has the real power. The author says, verse two, otherwise they would, um, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder, because they're offered all the time, right, of sins every year. So they were, because they're offered constantly means sin's not taken care of. It's still not taken care of. They're offered day and night, at least twice a day in Israel, by the, according to the law, at least twice a day, and on feast days, even more, okay? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, here's the boom, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, Father, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus has the power to actually make us clean and right before God that the law was never had and was never professed to have. It was only pointing to the one who was to come. As Paul says elsewhere, to trap us in a sense under conviction of sin that Christ might set us free. So we begin to add sort of things to do, look back to the law and begin to say, hey, the law actually perfects what Jesus has done or it completes it. We have totally missed the boat, is what Paul's saying. So this is what gospel freedom, the freedom Christ has purchased for us with his precious blood looks like. I wanna just break this down in a few different points. First of all, it frees us from guilt, from fear, from, punishment, from being punished for our sins, from the fear of death, from the power of death that takes us to hell. It frees us from fear of hell and from Satan in his domain. And it frees us from law keeping. So all this is sort of folded into uh, something that Martin Luther says in his lectures on Galatians. He says this, he says, 
Now, the truth of the gospel is that our righteousness comes by faith alone, without the works of the law. But here some men will say, the law is divine and holy, which it is, okay? Let the law have its glory, but no law, be it ever so divine and holy, can teach me that I am justified and ought to live through it, okay? I grant, it may teach me that I ought to love God and my neighbor, also to live in chastity, soberness, things the law teaches us, patience, etc. But it cannot show me how I should be delivered from sin, the devil, death, and hell. So in other words, the law is a mirror, and it shows us what we are, our, our, our falling short, the things that we've done that don't please God, our errors, our mistakes, our sins. But it has no power to do anything about those sins. Here I must take the counsel, says Luther, of the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, to wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And the circumcision thing, what Paul saw so clearly and made, wanted to make sure that the other apostles were on board with and were seeing as well, lest he had preached in vain, is this, that circumcision was not something that made us clean in and of ourselves. It was given to Abraham, the father of faith, when he believed that God could do what God promised he was gonna do, God considered him righteous by faith. A sign of that was circumcision. It was a sign of the inner righteousness that God had conferred on Abraham, okay? And um, it was never, that external mark was something, again, that was supposed to denote an internal reality. But yet, they had externalized things and said, okay, we, it's powerful in and of itself. It makes a difference. And, and what Paul realized is, no, like the rest of the law, circumcision points us to the one who takes away sin. The, uh, you know, the male foreskin was cut and cut the very point, the very place where life issues from, the male organ, was cut so death was essentially attached to it and it was bloodied and cast aside so that God's people could live with him in peace and in righteousness and in security. And that, Paul understands, is a picture. It's not in and of itself anything valuable other than that it's a picture of the one who would come, the Son of Man, Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come and who is the author of life and who himself would be bloodied on the cross for us, bearing our sin sacrifice, and who would be killed and cast aside so that we could be made alive. He took our sins upon himself, and when we look to him, his, our sins have been paid for, we're made clean, and he gave us his, his perfect keeping of the law from the heart. He was fully pleasing to the Father, and when we believe on him, he not only takes our sins, but he gives us a new heart. He gives us his righteous record. These are the things that Paul understood. These are the things that Luther has talked about. So it frees us from those things, from those deep, deep things. But also gives us the freedom not to sin, okay? Um, we're free to obey God our Father from the heart as Jesus did. We're, giving a, we're given a new disposition, a new spirit, his spirit, when we trust in him, when we look to him to be saved. Our righteousness is secure because Jesus kept the law for us. So Galatians 4, again later in the book, verse 4 Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that he might re we might receive, excuse me, the adoption of sons. So what's Paul saying? He's saying Christ 
willingly subjected himself to all the dictates and the constraints and the strictures of the law, which had to be kept perfectly, okay? Because God can't just dismiss law-breaking because law-breaking is sin and his law is good. Christ came and he submitted himself to that and he was obedient to every single law, not just externally, but from the heart. Loving God, his father, loving his neighbor with all that he was, all the time. And when we believe on him, that righteousness is transferred to us, which is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. The father made the son to be sin on that cross. Okay, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Not only are our sins taken care of, he, he becomes our sin. He internalizes it and pays for it and buries it in the ground. But he actually gives us his righteousness such that we become the righteousness of God. Luther called this the great exchange. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. All received by the open hand of faith. Not plus, not faith plus, no. Thirdly, it gives us the freedom to be with and to love those who aren't like us. In some ways, they aren't, they're not only like us superficially, they're not like us almost in any other way other than that they're human um, and therefore made in the image of God. We're no longer threatened by differences, external or otherwise, because if we're in Christ, he is now our identity. We stand in him forgiven and accepted in love through no good of our own. And so if we're in Christ together, we are part of the same family. It doesn't matter. There's nothing else that separates us. Those other things that... D- that are different about us, they are different, but they're not fundamental, they're secondary. And they're interesting. You know, whether it's race or where you're from or, or what sex you are or how old or how, how young, whatever, whatever, what kind of job you had, what social class, it, not, all those become secondary and tertiary. They still exist, but what identifies us is Christ and he brings us into that one family. That defines us. But, and if they're not in Christ, then what? We are seeking with everything that we have to see them brought into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, what you're like, how different you are, Christ died for all because it's by faith, not by becoming like a certain people group through doing this or that. So it frees us to, to be with in real fellowship and love those who are part of the family of Christ, no matter their differences, and we ought to look quite different from one another. That's the one way we know we're actually believing the gospel. And those who are outside, we are I heard it said, the church is the only institution that exists for the sake of its non-members. So we are yearning to invite people into our little parish families, not just getting together for community with other believers, but seeking to fold our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers and people that we haven't met yet that we're going out to preach the gospel to in a million different ways. We want to see that happen. Fourthly, we're free to be ourselves. We're free to be ourselves, who God made us to be. Look at Paul. He is not any longer driven by a desire to conform to man's desires, um, to be in there, to have their good opinion. I'm so driven by man's perceived good opinion of me. And when, in this text, and in the text that Paul's gonna preach next week and elsewhere, we see Paul bursting on the scene saying, this is the gospel, I'm not budging for an inch because my identity's in Christ, I know who I am. It doesn't really matter what you think, guys. This is the gospel, Christ has saved me. He saved anyone who will come to him. This defines him, and it allows him to be himself. He's still bold, he's still zealous, but what, what, where did his zeal and his personality lead to previously? Before he came to Christ, it led to murdering Christians. Now, does he become a milquetoast Captain Limpwurst once he comes to Christ? Does he lose his personality? No, it's sanctified, it's redeemed. It's given 
It's given life. It's turned from killing Christians to preaching the heck out of the gospel all around the Mediterranean world, backing down to no one. And so what happens is the more that we live into who we are in Christ and understand that we've been made family with God and we've been united to Jesus, the more united we are to Jesus, the more distinct we become in who God made us to be. So think about just one thing, planets. I'll just use one example to explain this, planets. Think about our solar system, okay? The Greeks, as far as I know, you you guys might know better, but thought that the planets were all perfect spheres because the sphere is the most perfect shape, geometry, and that there were no pot marks or any, there was, no, there was no imperfections on any of the planets and that the earth was at the center because, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, Ptolemy, it was the Ptolemaic conception of the universe and um, that everything was the same distance apart. It was all perfect geometrically. But re- we've found reality since then to be much different, more colorful, more eccentric. So planets are spherical, almost perfectly, not quite, Right. Uh, but some have craters on them. And in fact, Galileo ran up against trouble in the church when he saw that there were pockmarks on the moon and they said, no, it has to be perfect. Well, that was Aristotelian, okay? But some are cratered, some have atmospheres, other have none. Some, have, some are made of fire, some are rock, some are gas. Um, one has a storm twice the size of our planet just on it all the, all the time raging. It's red and furious. Some have rings, one is on its side, they're different distances apart. They're sort of like asteroids or meteors or whatever, asteroids, in between uh, a couple of them, Mars and Jupiter. So it's not like we would have thought it would be. It's, it's eccentric, it's colorful, it's unique. And God made these things. And you know, not only, it, the earth isn't the center, the sun is, and then our solar system's not at the center of the galaxy. It's just on, a, on an, like in the midway point of an arm. And then our galaxy is one of billions. So it's not... It's not just this predictable, perfect thing. It's colorful, it's eccentric, it's unique, and God made, it's because God made these things, and that's the way he is. He's the God of Genesis 1, who made all things what? According to their kind. He's a God bursting with creativity, who creates with seemingly infinite variety. And the more, again, that we love him and know him and realize we are united to him through the work of Christ alone, and we receive that by faith, and the more eccentric, unique, funny, quirky, we become and we are freed to be who God made us. And I think that, I mean, like snowflakes, I mean, not even a tiny piece of snow, if you look at them up close with these photographs, none of them are even close to alike. They're all so different. How much more are we who are made in God's image? And yet I think that sometimes in the church we all look so similar because we are adhering more to the false gospel, more to these sort of bits of religion that we've brought in. It's, we, we were sort of adhering to a list of don'ts rather than the true gospel, which is Christ has done it all, live in him. And out of that freedom, out of that freedom comes good work, okay? The good work isn't something we must do to be accepted. We're accepted because of the work of Christ. When we receive that, good works flow out of us, okay? Um, So Luther, he said this. I'm I'm just gonna take a bit that I read and and then add a bit more to the end of the quote. He says, here I must take the counsel of the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that's the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, to wit that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and believe it. So I stopped there, but here's the rest of it. Here's the last bit of the, the line. He says, and this is the truth of the gospel. It's also the principal article of all Christian doctrine in which the knowledge of all godliness consists. So do you hear what Luther's saying? First of all, he's saying, 
The law, it can tell me the good things to do, but it can't justify me. It can't make me right before God. It can't make me clean. Only faith in the Son of God and his death and resurrection for me can do that, and it does that. It does that completely. But secondly, he's saying this. He's saying this, realizing this reality and receiving that by faith is the ground out of which all obedience and good work flows and grows. This faith gives rise to a new tree on which fruit grows. Fruit, good works, love does not make us right before God. Faith in Jesus does. But fruit grows out of that faith. And this is the gospel. Um, This is the knowledge, Luther says, in which all godliness consists. So works prove genuine faith, but they have nothing to do with our own salvation. Jesus does that work from start to finish. Jesus does that work. I wanna leave you with this thought. Um, I'm reading a book on trees called The Great American Forest. It's riveting. Um, Don't go buy a copy. Um, And there's this one section on just, it's called like the tallest and the biggest on just sort of strange, amazing, massively sized trees. And he talks about, he features the giant sequoia out in California. And he gives stats on it. And he says, he says that it's the largest, there's a tree, you might've seen it, I've never been, but it's called General Sherman. And it's the largest that we've discovered living organism on earth. It's massive, massive. And he says this, he says, it's a footnote. He says the, the giant sequoia seed is three quarters of an inch long and 3,000 of those seeds weigh one ounce. If the seeds are planted and they take, look at the result. Look at how much growth, look at how much life, look at how much strength and beauty. Now, if the seed of the gospel that Paul preached and contended for to preserve for us, if it takes in our lives, it will, go, it will grow us into something far more beautiful and powerful and lasting and will go out from us and do the same. It starts small, but it has massive implications. Now you say, okay, hang on, wait a minute. That's a sequoia. This one was 4,000 years old, okay? We're only around for about 80 years max, any good life? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're forgetting about the resurrection. We are, the gospel seed, when it takes root, ends up in giving not only abundant life, but eternal life, life that does not end. Something far, far greater than anything, anything any sequoia can, can deliver. Um, religion enslaves only Christ sets free. Let me pray.